0: Boy, those words are true, aren't they? Man, Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday is incredible. It's like, you know, the one Sunday we get to that we can really, really, really celebrate. Uh, those three words, He is risen, they pierce the noise. They nullify uh, our, our sins. They, they nullify those things. And, and really, one thing she says is that these three words, they change Everything. Do you believe that? Holy cow. That is so good, right? Like, he is risen indeed. Let's say it He is risen. Oh man, I love that. It's so so good. Well, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. And uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, I would love the the opportunity or the chance to meet you uh, after after church and and hear just a little bit about your story and what God is doing uh, in in your life. So, um, you know, we are you know, and this has been referenced already with all of the snow and kind of the references. Like I feel like with all of the snow in, in our lives right now, it almost feels like we're we should just be going back into Christmas, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, like, it's this is just crazy. It's been such a long, such a long season. Um, but as I was thinking about snow this week, God led me to this story. He reminded me of this time many years ago before my wife and I moved to Fargo, uh, Moorhead. We lived in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. North Carolina, in its geography, is a, just a little bit more to the south. Um, and so... <laughs> Um, their, their, um, perception of snow is just, a, it's just a little bit different, you know, than ours here. Um, and so for us having grown up in the Midwest and I'd lived in Chicago for many years and we were in Colorado for some years. And then, so to, to move to, to North Carolina, uh, and for, to hear them talk about snow was, was a bit of a shock, right? And, and now I really know that I didn't know snow until, you know, now, but, but that's besides the point, um. Like, I'm, like, waiting for flowers just to bloom, and, it, like, all I see is white, you know, it's just painful. Um, but as I was thinking about this, so we were, in, we we're in North Carolina, and, uh, and the first snowstorm is, like, if we're on the verge of the first snowstorm, and so these people, this, this one gal, I think she came to me, and she's like, Seth, are you, you guys need to go to the store. It wasn't a question. It was a statement. You guys need to go to the store. And I was like, okay, like, you, you know this how? <laughs> and she's like, well, there's a storm coming. And I was like, well, I mean, I know that there's snow, like on the forecast, like kind of thing. She's like, no, 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 you need to go buy food. And I was like, okay, like, I mean, I know that we, like, you know what, I'll just go. Because there's there's a few things I probably should pick up anyways. I didn't understand what that meant at the time. But here's what happened is I go to the store and I kid you not, this is what I see. Okay this is what I see and this is this is important because this will be in our passage. This is what I see is people running past me to get into the grocery store. Like like I'm walking in casually in the flip-flops okay? Casually walking in, and people like bump, like almost like bumping you trying to like get into the store. And I was like, Man, like, what is the big deal? Come on, like, you know. And so I get in there and I start walking back to the things that I need, and I see to my left the bread aisle, all gone. Every single loaf except for maybe two. And it's the th- loaves that you go, Man, I need some bread. Oh, no, not that one, you know, like, like whatever that was, like that really gross one, you know. So, like, all the bread is gone. And then I go to the milk, all the milk is gone. Every single jug. And I go to the eggs, all of the eggs are gone. And I was like, North Carolina, these people must love French toast. <laughs> you know? Like, they must just love French toast. Because I could not wrap my brain around this. This is what I saw, is it people running to these things. And so you're like, why? Why do you tell me this? Okay, so two things. One is this is that uh, when we get into our passage, we're going to be in John uh, chapter 20. We're going to look at this familiar story of of the resurrection of Peter and John and Mary Magdalene who are going to come to the tomb, and we're going to see two themes kind of woven through this. One is the idea of running, and the other is the idea of what they see. Okay? And we'll talk about that more. But, but here's the deal. Here's the second reason, and this is just something that, that God is like stirring in my heart. I get it that this is kind of a general kind of big umbrella question, but I think that it's fundamentally true that in your heart and in my heart, because of the sin that's in our life, you and I are constantly running towards something. That we are running into the store. We're constantly running somewhere. Right? with this intention of buying it up, whatever it is. Right? And what we need this morning is what I need this morning is for the three words he is risen to, to disrupt that and to point me and to point each of us in this room back to Jesus because that's where we should be running and that's where we will find life. Okay, so we're going to jump into uh, the story, right? Like, again, there's this risen or there's this hurriedness in life, and so we, we desperately need this, but I just want you to see kind of like the, the patterns and the rhythms, the, the walking and the running that's going to happen here in this story, okay? And to help us see kind of what's going on. So last week, we, we started in the Mount of Olives with Jesus in this triumphal entry. Down in Bethany, he went up to, um, you know, to Bethpage, and then he gets on a donkey, and he travels down through the Kidron Valley, across to right here, where's this this spring of Gihon, which is right where Solomon the king uh, was crowned or kind of brought into the city. And so Jesus, riding on a donkey, fulfilling this prophecy, kind of reenacts this and follows the footsteps of Solomon. And the whole time, there's this group, really this massive group of people who are shouting Hosanna, which means free us or deliver us. So there's this need, right? Like deep inside the people are expressing this need for freedom, and they have no idea what Jesus is really going to do, but they have all of these expectations of him, right? In fact, so much so that this entire city becomes a stir. And so people everywhere are asking this question, who is this? And so for a week, Jesus does ministry. The bulk of his ministry is in the temple. And he does a lot. So so much of stuff that we have recorded uh, in the New Testament is from this final week, as we get to see. But as his death looms closer, unbeknownst to everybody else, there is a moment that Jesus wants to spend with his disciples. And so he comes down to this little room in this corner of the city that we call the upper room. And it's here that he, he engages in this, this last supper thing, right? As he is eager to share a meal with his disciples because uh, he knows that he's not going to have another meal like this until the end, right? And so it's this moment where he breaks the bread and, and says, this is my body which is broken for you. And this is, this is the, the wine that represents my blood that will be shed for you. And it's like the disciples are clueless. As, as all of us probably would have been, right? And so then they would have left, left the upper room, probably come out the south side here and followed the same, almost the same pattern to come over here and right in the foothills of, of the Mount of Olives is what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay. The Garden of Gethsemane uh, comes from two Hebrew words. It means, uh, or it's Gatshmanim, which means the, the pressing of olives. Okay, um, And so what it is is that Jesus is sitting here in this, this olive vineyard, probably across from an olive press, which they would have been pressing not once but twice but three times to get all of the oil out of the olives. And by the third pressing, all of those olives would have been so crushed and mangled and torn that they would begin to kind of flow in with the oil. And they press it so much and so hard that every single drop of oil comes out of those olives. And so here's why this is significant because in in the New Testament, there's this big word called propitiation. Okay, you can go find it sometime. And it means this, it means the exhausting of God's wrath. So if God is holy and just and there is sin in the world, there has to be Punishment. There's this this disposition of wrath against sin. But because God is a loving God, what does he do? He takes the punishment for that sin himself in his son, Jesus. Right? So he sends his son and there's this, but there's so much crushing. It's that every single ounce of God's wrath has to be crushed out of that olive. And that's what Jesus is about to endure while he's at the garden. On Good Friday, we did an exercise uh, where we wrote down, you know, some of our sins. We just kind of took a time and, and some, just some moments to capture what are the, the different sins in our life and in our heart. And so as I started, you know, I started writing. And I was like, okay, well, th- yep, there's that one, obviously. <laughs> yeah, God, you know that one. And then, and then there's, there's this one over here. And yep, there's this one. And that one, and that one, and yep, that one, and oh, gross, that one. And then you're like, oh, and then I, f- yeah, I actually forgot about that one, right? And you start writing all these things down, and eventually what it turned into is like it kind of moved away from these general ideas and these big categories to that moment, that moment when I said this to my wife. Or that moment when, or that moment when, and I kept writing and kept writing. And as you're looking at this, like I start writing, I'm sitting over this and it's like I found myself, I write it and and I'd be like, "Let's, let's keep that down. I don't want people to see the mess in my heart, right? Like, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking about how much sin is represented. And it's just what I could think of. And so as I started thinking, you know, as you think about exhausting the wrath of God, though, right, you hold this piece of paper and you're like, well, wow, that's actually pretty light. Yeah, Jesus can handle that. Jesus can handle that. But then you forget that this is just such a small capture of a much larger picture. And you start to think about the reams, these massive, massive amounts of paper that if, and thankfully God doesn't do this, but if God kept a record of wrongs, who could stand, right? And all of a sudden you start thinking about this and you go, man, that's how heavy this is. And maybe this is just from the last year. Like, I don't know like, how, that, how that works, but all of a sudden, that really light piece of paper has become something incredibly heavy. And as I begin to think about my role in Jesus' crucifixion, in Jesus' death, now I'm, now I'm thinking about how much pain I caused. And now I'm, then I also begin to think that that's just me in the last year. What about all the sins from my past? all the sins from those present and, and all those sins from my future. And what about for the rest of humanity, right? For, for all of history past and history present and history future, like all of a sudden you picture Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's preparing for this crushing, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's heavy, That's so, so heavy. And we begin to picture this powerful metaphor that the olive press is helping us understand and see what's happening in Jesus' heart as he knows that he's heading to his death. Because then what happens is the story continues. As he's in the garden, then he's betrayed by one of his friends. He's arrested Probably would have had to walk the exact same walk, back down again, and he would have come over to this guy's Caiaphas house. Caiaphas was the high priest. By the way, here's a picture just to make it more real. um, If you feel like, man, I just, like I want to attach myself to this story, these are likely the very steps that Jesus walked up on his way to the high priest. It makes it a little bit more real, doesn't it? Because from there, what happens is that he goes from Caiaphas, later, after his imprisonment, he goes where? To Pilate, who's up here in the middle of the city, closer right, to the temple. And, and, and what we find is that Pilate examines Jesus and he says, here's the deal. You people, I find no fault with Jesus. But because I'm scared of you, I'll do what you want. And so because like, as soon as there's this, pronunci- this pronouncing of his sentencing, it's, it's under Roman law, it's meant to be immediate. And so Jesus would have had to leave this place after being stripped of all of his possessions. He would carry the, the top beam or the cross beam of the cross that he would himself be uh, put on, and he would have to walk through the streets of Jerusalem. And everybody looking at you around each bend and each corner murmuring because they know that those who are crucified are killed because they are a criminal. And so here's Jesus, and he walks his way out the city to the place traditionally known as Golgotha. It's the hill where there was crucifixions. And it's in this space that Jesus would have been nailed to the cross, and in order to breathe, right, most people think about the pain, you know, and which is true, um, but there's a sense of like, like, in order to breathe, you would have to push off of those nails every time in order to expand your chest, and now you could breathe, but then you, in exhaustion, you would collapse, but then you, to breathe, you would have to redo it all over again. And it's excruciating over and over and over. And it's in the process of this exhausting death. He's exhausting the wrath of God, by the way. And it's, and it's in the middle of this, this death by exhaustion that the chief priests and the ruling leaders are all mocking Jesus, saying, oh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, right? right? You can save other people, but you can't save yourself. Oh, Jesus, if you would just come off of the cross, and then we would believe you. We would believe you if you just come off of the cross. And we go, it's not, it's not because he can't do that. It's because he chose not to do that. Because unbeknownst to them and to the rest of the world, he was bearing the sins of the very people who mocked him. And so for us, for you and I, right, as we look at Jesus in that moment and he says with finality, like this propitiation, the exhausting of God's wrath, he goes, it is finished. Here's what we know, right? This is what we think of. This is what we see. We take this water right here and it's like Jesus enters into the story because he's all about forgiveness of sins and we know that, but they didn't really get it. So this is how we see it. We take those sins, and we put it in that water, and ah, just give it a little stir, and all of a sudden, all of those sins are gone. All of those sins are gone, and and you're reminded of this, this thing where it's like our sins were Red and as crimson as scarlet, but he washed us white as snow. And all of a sudden, we start to praise God for the snow outside because it's a reminder of what happened on the cross. Here's my question, though, for you: uh, With this, is what good does this do apart from a life that follows? Because if you have forgiveness of sins, that's what Paul says. He's like he says, if if we have hope for this life only then we are above all most to be pitied because this doesn't do me any good unless I have a life that comes with it. And so that's why the resurrection is so fundamentally important to our Christian faith and why we need Jesus not just to die on the cross, but to raise from the grave. Okay, look at chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Okay, so um, the Sabbath in their day um, didn't like start in the morning and go till evening. It kind of ran from evening to evening the next day. So um, technically the Sabbath would have ended the night before, but Mary Magdalene, um, she wants to go love on and care for uh, Jesus' body right? So there's this deal, right? Um, And she wants to go do that. But because if she were to go last night, like all of that would be, um, like there'd be no light, no way for her to actually do that. So she goes early in the morning. She goes early in the morning, so early, in fact, that once she gets there, she's like, I'm just waiting for sunlight to enter into into the world so that way I can carry carry for Jesus' body. Little did she know that sunlight was going to be totally different this day. Pretty crazy, right? And so she gets there, and what does she find? She sees this, like, this picture of, a, of, a, of an open tomb. So it would have been this kind of this flat, this flat uh, uh, tomb here, and you can see a little groove on the bottom. There would have been this large kind of stone, uh, this rolling kind of round stone that they would roll in front in that groove, and then they would use that little block to kind of wedge it into place. And so she gets there, and this is what she sees, Okay. She sees this as part, one of those themes, right? She sees it, but then what does she do? Look at this next verse. So she ran. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's just John's way of talking about himself because he's the author. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So there's this fear, kind of like of grave robbery, which was very common in those days. And so Peter and John, what do they do? It says So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outrun Peter and reached the tomb first, okay? So um, Peter was probably the oldest of all of the disciples uh, and therefore probably had not been working on his cardio, okay? So John, who's much younger, is not, it's not a competition, but he's running at a pace that Peter can't catch up. And so John gets to this tomb first and he sees Sees the same image, right? This open tomb. But here's how it goes in verse five, and stooping to look in. Okay, so there's this. Just just pause for a second, right? Because you know, like you get to the tomb, and, and you know it's like Peter. Or, excuse me, John. It's like he's afraid to go in, and so he kind of stoops in, leaves his feet on the outside, and is looking and is looking in. And it's kind of like this question of like, what am I going to find? What am I going to find? You yeah, know, at home, we have, we have a husky um, who's about eight years old, and when she was a puppy, she chewed a lot of things, and then she matured uh, and stopped chewing, okay? And so for the last, you know, I don't know, maybe five years, she hasn't done that until the last couple of weeks, she started chewing again. And so every time I get home, and as I open that door, like, I have this moment of cringe. Like, what am I going to find, you know, like, in anticipation? And sometimes she gets, like, like the trash, and just pulls everything, like, everywhere. I'm like, I don't even know where that trash bag was. But yesterday I came home, and here's what I see. I opened up this door, and here's Nikki's nice backpack. And I was like, huh. I mean, Nikki's pretty conscious about where she puts things. I highly doubt that she <laughs> left it right there. you know. And so I reached down to examine, and sure enough, the whole right side is just slobbered. And there's holes all in the bottom. And then I look in the corner and my, and my poor puppy is like just looking at me like, I know, I know, I know, you know, like just terrified. And so then I, you know, I put the bag down and then my dog and I had to come to Jesus conversation, um, which didn't work. Um, but like there's this moment like when you open the door and there's this anticipation of what are you going to find. And so all of a sudden you put yourself in their shoes and how much more significant this is. Because as he's stooping and peering in, right, he's either not going to find Jesus, or he's going to find Jesus, and it's going to re-stir all of that pain all over again. And so as he peers in, though, here's what he finds. He finds an empty tomb. It's empty. In fact, the only thing that he finds are these linen cloths. Okay? Which, which most likely I mean, the, the grave robbers would have taken because those are costly things. And so it, if, if it was that, but it probably wasn't, right? And so he chooses, though, not to go in. But then here, this is, this is where it gets fun, right? Verse 6, classic Peter. Peter finally shows up. <laughs> he gets there. He's huffing and puffing. Simon Peter came following him, and he just barges right into the tomb, it's classic Peter. He goes right in, and here's what he sees. He sees the linen cloths lying there, but this additional piece and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, so it's not in the same place, and it had been folded up in a place by itself. And so there's this carefulness and this, this concern and care for it, and it's been placed somewhere as if it's, been, it's supposed to be seen. You know, when I go into a department store, I buy clothes about once every five years, And I always need a pair of jeans, and so I go, and I tell you what, you can tell when I've been there, because I try on a pair of jeans, and I fold it, and it doesn't matter how many times I try, I put it back in, and there's, like, just globs hanging out everywhere. And it's like, I, like, apologize to the store, sorry, sorry, you're gonna have to redo everything that I just did. And yeah, you think about this, right, There's, there's Jesus, and he is carefully folded, is folded exactly the way that he wants it to be, and he sets it aside over here as if he wants people to see it, right? He wants people to see it. And so all of a sudden we go, like this is a very special thing, it's different, it's careful. And then John works up the courage in verse eight. It says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed and you're like what what is it that john believed in this moment did he believe in the resurrection maybe maybe he believed that the body was gone because the very next piece says they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead And so here's what's fascinating to me. John is the author of this text, and he gives us no insights and no clues into what he and Peter are talking about, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, but let me capture this for you, okay? Because here's the footsteps, Right? So here's the footsteps. You've got people who were staying in Jerusalem. In fact, they had locked themselves in in a room because out of fear for the Jews. And yet, because they need to get here, they choose to risk it. So Mary Magdalene is the first one, you know. She does her walk early in the morning before anybody else is up, and she comes out. She finds that the tomb, at least, is open, right? So she runs, you see this? There's a walking and then a running, right? There's this, this massive shift in the eagerness of the text because it goes from just this normal, casual, kind of like grief and pain-filled walk to this desperate run, And so she tells Peter and John, and then the two of them, they run to the same place. So can you imagine early in the morning as people, the whole city is starting to wake up, right? In the middle of Passover feast as everybody is celebrating these three random people sprinting through the city. And all of a sudden, you get this picture of what's happening. And then they get here, and what do they find? They find an empty tomb. And this is where it gets, this is so confusing to me, because John, this is how John ends it. He says, and they went home. And you're like, what? Like, that feels so anticlimactic. There was running, and then they went home. They find an empty tomb. They find all of this evidence that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and they just go home. Right, But it's different for Mary because Mary stays. Look at verse 11. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So she's there. She must have followed them or or ran back behind them. But she wept as she... And then she says that she stooped and looked into the tomb. So she does the same thing as John. But what does she see? She sees something very different. She sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. It's like she doesn't even give him a chance to respond. And having said this, she turns around, right? She turned around, and she saw, more seeing, she saw Jesus standing there but she did not know that it was Jesus. She's probably so wrapped in her grief and her emotion, Jesus asks her a question. He says, woman, why are you weeping? He repeats it. Maybe, maybe this is a mild rebuke because she should know that all of the disciples should have known, or maybe this is super compassionate because he knows how much she loves him. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It's like she still doesn't perceive, she's still in her own world. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Just let me do my part, just let me love on my Savior, let me do that. And it's in this moment that Jesus, in his compassion, said, Mary, it's the only thing that's recorded, Mary, it's personal, it's intimate, it's kind, it's loving, it's caring. And it's like the world begins to click. She, it's like she hears the tone. How, is he, how does he know my name? Wait, I know that voice. That's Jesus. This is not what I expected. And so she turns to him and in Aramaic says, "Raboni," which means teacher. And and Jesus later, he just says, do not cling to me. So you almost get this picture that Mary runs to Jesus in this massive bear hug and clings him in here. He gets him in this hug, first and foremost, probably because Mary Magdalene loved Jesus she loved him so much, right? He was the Savior, the Messiah, right? He had forgiven her, like gotten her out of jams. It's crazy, right? And so she would run to him. But I wonder, guys, if you're, if you're Mary in that moment, does she realize that the person that she is holding is the living and breathing resolution to the Genesis problem, which is mankind's deepest need, As she's holding him in this brace, I'm guessing she doesn't. Because as she's holding him, you go all the way back to the garden. God creates the universe, and it's good. He creates Adam and Eve, and it's good. Sin, shocker, enters in the world, and everything flips upside down. We are designed to be selfless. We become selfish. That becomes a gravity that we can't fight. And so as God looks at it with his redemptive love, he says, my plan is to bring Jesus and he will make that right. And so as she holds him, does she realize she's holding the living, breathing resolution to our deepest need? That we can not just have the forgiveness of sins, but that we can have life. That's what Jesus' resurrection shows and proves and encourages us in the middle of whatever it is that we have going on in our life right here. And this is what I love is that how it ends. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. <laughs> you see, there's this, there's this tension between Peter and John. They go to the tomb, and what do they find? Emptiness. Marth, Mary, Magnus, she goes to the tomb. What does she find? She finds Jesus. You see, this is a very different thing for us as we go and where we're looking for Jesus. Maybe we're looking in the wrong place, right? So when we think about, we think about this story, right, what started, the story started with this. Death which is the inevitability and the permanent reality for every single human being. So when Jesus died, right, now granted, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, but no one would have anticipated, despite the fact that he told them that he would need to do it, that he would be raised from the dead. And so this is this permanent reality, but as she looks in Jesus' face, all of a sudden, this is possible. Right? And so what John is now doing is he's leading to this idea for us. is where does believing really fit in? Because when you think about it this way, right? So what started with what they saw when they ran to the tomb, and what do they see? They see an open tomb. Then they find an empty tomb. Then they see the cloths, then they find the face cloth, then Mary sees the angels, and finally she meets and sees Jesus. In fact, when Jesus goes on to later talk to Thomas, who's one of the doubting disciples, here's what Jesus said. Thomas said, I won't believe until I put my finger right there. And so as Jesus shows up, he says, hey, Thomas, put your finger right here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And all of a sudden, Thomas, because he saw, says this, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? But guess what? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, every single one of those pieces that they saw was evidence enough to believe in Jesus. And you don't even have to see that, to believe in Jesus. This is how the story ends in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Do you catch that? John's like, hey, I've recorded all of these things. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may have life. When we were in Israel, we had our tour guide. His name is Andre. Andre was a Russian Orthodox Jew, but self-proclaimed atheist. And as we were there, and as we were looking at the different tomb sites for Jesus, and the whole crowds are swarming and flocking to these potential tomb sites because they want to see what? They want to see the tomb where Jesus was. They ran, they run to the tomb. And what Andre said as a Russian Orthodox Jew, self proclaimed atheist, here's what he said to us he said, Guys and gals, it doesn't matter where he rose from the dead, it matters that he did. I thought, for a guy who's an atheist, you have more conviction than most people. That's incredible. And so, as we think about this, as we come back to this, as we finish, right? Like, we think about the gospel story, like the good news of Jesus is that what does God bring to the table? What does Jesus bring? He brings all the hard stuff. What do we bring? Belief. But here's the kicker when you put all of that together, what you get is life. That's what you get. And that's the power of not just the death, but the resurrection of Jesus. Guys, can I leave you with this, this idea of Christianity? There's a massive difference between a Christianity that, um, that acknowledges an empty tomb and a Christianity that celebrates the living Jesus. You see, Christianity in our faith is not about stooping and peeking in to the door. It's about walking out of the door. You see, if you, think, if you think that you're coming to the empty tomb to find life, that's not where you're going to find it, because where you're going to find life is in the living Jesus, and he is not in the tomb. He is risen. Those words pierce our stories. Those words interject themselves into our busyness. They tell us that the reality of life has changed and that everything in my life now revolves around this and this person and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish and as we wrap up this morning, Lord, I'm picturing these these palm branches that what started with the triumphal entry. And all the expectations that surrounded Jesus, right? After his death, they were on the ground being trampled over by people. The expectations of Jesus were forgotten because Jesus was in a tomb, and he was as dead as the very branches on the ground that had been severed from the tree. And so Lord, this morning, I pray that you would redefine our expectations. That you would help us to see that that we don't come to you for, for the reasons that we always want, but we come to you because in you, you have life. And that it's your desire that we have life to the fullest. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would be nudging and pulling on our hearts That we would ask ourselves this burning question that in life, whether I've been following Jesus for 60 years or six minutes or never before, that you would answer the question in our hearts, what have we been running to? Because instead, would we run to Jesus not to find an empty tomb, that we would not run to things where we find emptiness, but that we would run to find life in Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.